and then we uh, re-signed to Warner's, but uh, Ted Templeman re-signed us, and he was the hottest producer of the year, and he loved Garibaldi, and Garibaldi had come back in the band a third time. And, uh, but then, you know, we went to sign the deal, and Garibaldi got cold feet on the day we signed and said he couldn't do it. And once again, it was because of the addictions, you know. He just couldn't stand watching us do that. And uh, when we um, signed the, the record deal, you know, they gave us a bunch of money and we got out of debt. And, you know, but Ted Templeman, he, he couldn't be reached. And it turned out he was, you know, having an affair and had a hole in his nose and liver problems, <laughs> you know. And uh, he told the, the record company, I'm going to let Emilio produce it. I got too many medical problems. I got problems with my marriage. And they said, we only signed them because of you. And they dropped us. And to the industry, it looked like these guys are a bunch of losers. And then everything went down. Yeah. Then we didn't have a record deal for until the 90s. I, I want to mention for viewers um, that Anath and Stephanus now did have uh, You Ought to Be Having Fun, which was a nice... Yeah, we do that live now. It always gets a big response. So it was a great record. You know, it came out good. I never was proud of that production of that song because uh, the, the song originally, the, the, the hook came from the singer, Hubert Tubbs. And we had to let Hubert Tubbs go. Once again, there was a drug thing. He had an acid flashback on stage and that was it. You know, we couldn't do it anymore. But he came in to see me one day before that and he goes, I got an idea for this song. And I go, what's that? He goes, you ought to be having fun. You ought to be having. I was like, yeah, that's a winner. He goes, yeah, can you help me finish it? You know, we go, yeah. You know, and we finished it. But when I recorded it, he was out of the band. And I had Edward McGee. And I had gone to a Smokey Robinson concert when he had that song, Quiet Storm. And I remember going to the concert. He had these two background singers. One was Melba Joyce, and I forget the name of the other girl, but they sounded like a Mellotron. They were so perfect. I couldn't believe it. I said, I got to have these girls on my record. And I brought them in, and unfortunately, it wasn't the right move. You know, Not that they weren't great singers, because they were, but it just made it sound soft. You know, and I always wish, man, I wish I would have just done it the way he sang it in my bedroom that day. You know, a man's voice, you ought to be having, you know, like six men singing that, you know, would have been much more manly and just hard hitting, you know. But uh, I recorded it again with Ellis Hall in the mid 80s, and I thought the version was better. But even still, for some reason, I had a hard time dealing with the production on that song. I'd like to see somebody else produce it. But, you know, we do it live today. And every time we play it, people are like, oh, my God, they're playing that song. So it was a pretty substantial hit. Yeah, it got a lot of radio play for sure. I, I, in um, Los Angeles, where I was, anyway. Big time in L.A., yeah. Yeah. Um, one track I want to mention on that, Back on the Streets, um, that I liked a lot, um, It Takes Two, um, really funky and um, kind of atypical in the bass for Tower of Power. It kind of had that plucking sound that you guys didn't usually have. But I like yeah, that's because that's not Rocco. Yeah. That's San Filippo. And uh, Chester Thompson wrote that song. That's why it's so funky. You know, it's, that's a really cool song, you know. But, uh, you know, Rocco had serious drug problems. And I fired him. He was out of the band for eight years. And then I brought him back in the mid 80s. And that's really when we sort of got back to sounding the way we're supposed to sound, you know. And that's not to say that 
Victor Conti and San Vito San Filippo weren't excellent bass players. They were, but they were sort of, you know, uh, like all the others, whereas Rocco's like no other. Right. So you bounced back and you came back with your first record in 87 with Power. Um, how did it feel to be back at it? Well, you know, honestly, uh, I never felt like I was never at it. You know, we were always writing new songs and we'd always perform them live. I had done a recording, uh, a Sheffield Labs uh, direct-to-disc record. And we recorded that, uh, that album, Power, and nobody wanted it. <laughs> you know, they labeled us as dinosaurs. And so nobody wanted the record. And that was with Ellis Hall. And, you know, he and I were producing the record. And uh, he was phenomenal. I mean, even to this day, he's one of my favorite singers we ever had. Incredible writer. I thought the songs were great. You know, I worked with uh, Ron Pendragon, who was George Massenberg's assistant. And then we had this song, Go and Get It With Your Good Credit. And George Massenberg uh, uh, mixed it. And, uh, you know, we had the kind of sound that I was really proud of, and, uh, but nobody wanted it, you know? And so this little company in uh, Copenhagen called Genlid Records put it out, and they called it Power. And what happened was there was a guy named Craig Sussman who had an office above the studio where we recorded that record, which was a place called The Complex, George Massenberg's place in LA. And, uh, Every night he'd come down from his office and he'd hear us in the studio and he'd be like, man, it's phenomenal. He loved it, you know. And then I guess, you know, like a year and a half, two years later, he's inquiring, like, whatever happened to that record? Somebody that he knew at the complex. And he said, you know, it never came out. And what happened was we had this guy that we knew that had a lot of money and he paid for that recording. And when it didn't come out, uh, you know, he took the tapes and we didn't have them, you know. And then uh, somehow somebody told this guy, Craig Sussman, about him. And Craig started a new record company with this other guy from Warner Brothers, or used to be the Warners, and they called it uh, Cypress Records. So I, you know, I'm out there touring and I come back and somebody goes, hey, I got your new record. And I'm thinking they're talking about the record in Copenhagen, you know, and I go, I go really? They go, yeah. I go, what record is that? They go, Power. They go, Power? Yeah, power. I got it. It's on Cypress Records. I was like, Cypress Records, what's that? And so we go get the record, you know, and we call these people up and they're like, yeah, well, we bought it from this guy, Tim McDonough. You know, he had the masters and we love it and, uh, and we want to do more, <laughs> you know, We're like, okay, you know, and uh, so the record came out. But that was like a, a real movie, you know, for that thing to come out. Yeah, well, I mean, the 80s in general was sort of like a um, wasteland for so many of the uh, great uh, funk R&B acts of the 70s, and not too many bounced back, especially to the degree that you guys did. I mean, in the 90s, I mean, you got right back at it, and you had albums coming out pretty regularly, and they were of high quality. I mean, kudos. I mean, that was quite an accomplishment to come back like well, that's that. That's totally because I got sober in 1988. That's the total reason for that. Once I got sober and started living right, and one year later, you know, Doc always says, I made the last year of his drinking and using hell, <laughs> you know. And a year later, he got sober. And then we started writing again. What happened is we were at our wit's end. It's almost 1990, and we can't get a record deal. And the guys are frustrated, you know. And it's like, we're going to break up if something doesn't happen. And I remember Michelle Zarin was managing me. And there used to be this guy that came around to see us in New York. 
His name was Michael Kaplan. And he was a wormy little guy, a little short guy. And you come around and you go, I want to be in the record business. You're my favorite band. And, you know, I always started gushing all over us. And, you know, then he come around again the next time we come to town. I'm working in the in the mailroom at Sony, I mean, at Columbia, you know. We're like, oh, great, man, you know. And pretty soon he's working his way up, you know. And uh, come to find out, he became an A&R guy. He was like vice president of A&R at Epic Records. And I told Michelle, I go, you know what? I want you to call this guy Michael Kaplan. He always comes and he's always raving about how we're his favorite band. I want you to tell him that if we're really his favorite band, he needs to do something or else his favorite band is not going to be anymore. And she goes, well, you know, where is it? He's Epic Records, Vice President of A&R. And she calls the guy up. Well, it turns out he had been sober like three years, right? No, four years, I think. And, uh, He's talking to Michelle, and Michelle says, oh, you know, Emilio's sober now, two years, and Doc's got a year. And uh, he goes, oh, he goes, yeah, well, I'm interested, you know. And so he calls me up, you know, and he says, uh, so what's going on with the band? I go, the band's in great shape. You know, we're playing great. I'm sober. Doc is sober. I've hired people with principals, and they're all really together. I go, you know, the band is doing great. We just need a record deal. He goes, well, do you have songs? I go, yeah, we always have songs. He goes, can you demo them? I go, we've demoed a lot of them. He goes, well, I'm going on vacation. If you send me a cassette, I'll give him a listen and I'll get back to you. So I send him a cassette and he goes like to the Virgin Islands for vacation. And he comes back and uh, he calls me right before, uh, or as soon as he gets back, you know. And um, he says, yes. <laughs> Yes, he says, uh, I like this material. And yeah, it's good. And he goes, uh, so uh, here's the deal. He says, I can sign you. He says, but I'm not just going to sign you and force people to do this. I got a plan. And he goes, what I want you to do is I want you to book seven nights at the bottom line in Greenwich Village. And each night, I'm going to bring five or six people from the company. And I'm going to, I'm going to, Help them to see what a great band you are. And so he started bringing people down. And what he did was he wrote a memo and he sent it through the whole company. And he said, 10 reasons why you should never sign a band like Tower of Power. Number one, they're dinosaurs. Number two, they're drug addicts. Number three, they're old and can't play anymore. You know, and he makes this list, 10 reasons why. And then the next day, he sends out another memo and he rebuts all of those things, you know. And everybody's like, you know, what's this about? And he goes, you know, come with me tonight. Come with me tonight. Come with me. And so by Saturday, we had already played Monday through Friday. Saturday morning, he calls me up and he says, I want you to get the guys together for lunch. I'm taking you all out to lunch. I go, oh, okay. He goes, yeah, we're celebrating. I go, what are we celebrating? He goes, I'm signing you to a seven album record deal. <laughs> And we signed with Epic for a seven-album deal. Michael Kaplan, yeah. great guy. Coming back with a major, no small feat. I mean. Yeah, major. Wow. Well, you know, credit to him for, you know, yeah. working the mold. I'm still in touch with him. You know, he's uh, he's not with uh, Sony anymore, but uh, he worked my new record. He's a, he's a real record guy, man. Really happy guy. Um. The one record I want to mention specifically from uh, this actually is later in, the, in 
<clears throat> the 2000s, but um, Great American Songbook. That's one that really stands out. Great American Soul Book. Soul Book, I'm sorry. Yeah. So what influenced you to finally do something like that, a project of that type, and, and how did you get it together? Well, we didn't want to do it, number one. You know, everybody did that, and we don't chase trends. But we had this manager at the time named Pat Raines, really savvy guy, good guy, loved the band. And he said, look, you know, we told him, he said, you know, I think you ought to try a cover album. We said, we don't want to do a cover album. That's, you know, everybody's doing that, you know. He goes, yeah, he goes, but, you know, think about it, man. You, you guys are the ones that should do it. You're a real soul band, you know. Got all these yo-yos out there doing these, you know, Motown covers and all this stuff. And he goes, you know, we're coming up on 40 years together, and we're going to do a DVD, a live concert. And he says, but I think it'd be great to give them an album that's different. You always give them an album of all originals. He goes, just one album, you know. And he says, what about if I just go to all the major promoters we work with throughout the world, Europe, Japan, and get some comments about that? <clears throat> and it was the same thing. They all said, of all the artists in the world, these are the guys that should do it. And so we sort of reluctantly said, okay. We said, but we're going to start it. And, uh, you know, if it doesn't go well, we're banding the project. We're just going to do a, an all-original record. He goes, yeah, he goes, just give it a try. That's all I ask. So we started to do it. You know, and at the time, that's right when Rocco was really having serious health problems with his liver, you know. And it was like pulling teeth, getting him recorded. And so it was a real struggle. And the guys are watching me produce this record and what a struggle it is. But they're not in there every day hearing all the things I'm doing, you know. And I'm adding stuff and fixing stuff. And you know, it's starting to come along. And then we have this meeting on the bus. We're on tour. We're on the bus. And we think we ought to man this, this project. You know, it's, it's like nobody's into it and blah, blah, blah. I go, wait a minute. Hey, wait a minute. I go, I put a lot of work into this thing, man. You guys need to listen to it. You haven't even heard it recently, you know. And they go, well, okay, you know. So I played them the cuts. I had about nine cuts at that point. And they were stunned. They go, wow, you know, this sounds really good. They go, yeah, it's going to be a good record, man. And then everybody wrapped their head around the project, and we went at it full steam. And uh, we were really proud of that record. It came out good. It should be. I mean, like you said, a lot of covers are just kind of going through the motions, you know, but this thing has that authenticity in it. And also some interesting uh, collaborations. I'm wondering if the label set you up with these people or if you knew them. But just mentioning some of the folks that were on there, Tom Jones, uh, Sam Moore, uh, Josh Stone, Huey Lewis, of course, who you mentioned before, George Duke, you know. Yeah, you know, um, we we wanted to have guest stars. That was a big thing everybody was doing. We wanted, and nobody wanted to do it, you know. And the record company said they would help, and they didn't do anything. And the manager, Pat, was trying, but he couldn't get nobody. And uh, somehow, uh, I got in touch with Josh Stone and she said, yeah, I'll do it. And uh, we did two tracks with her. She was phenomenal, phenomenal. She came in and every take she did was different and everyone was good. I mean, I couldn't believe it. She, I, I remember asking her, I said, like, where are you from? You know, like, like Mars or what? You know? She says, no, I'm from England. And I go, no, I know that, but I mean, where did you grow up? How did you get so soulful? She goes, actually, I grew up on a farm. 
She said, but my parents always like to play big band music and, you know, Dinah Washington and Nat King Cole. And, you know, oh, man, she was good, you know. So we got two tracks with her. And at the time, we were doing a little tour with Tom Jones, and he really dug the band. And I just asked him personally, I said, man, you know, we need somebody to guest star on our record. Would you do it? He said, yeah, but scheduling it was really a problem. Finally, we were doing a gig in Vegas, and he was there. And I remember I called his son was managing him, Mark. I called Mark. I go, man, I see you're in Vegas. You know, we can bring the tracks there. He goes, Tom doesn't like to record in Vegas because he gets Vegas throat. I said, we'll record wherever you want. He goes, well, where are you at? I go, we're in L.A. He goes, all right. He goes, we'll come to L.A. and do it. And he came and he did I Thank You. And then, you know, we're doing I Thank You by Sam and Dave. And I'm thinking to myself, Sam Moore lives right by me in Scottsdale, you know. And I, I, I got a number for him and I called his wife, Joyce Moore. And I said, you know, we're doing this record. And we wondered if Sam would come in and sing Mr. Pitiful. It's an oldest wedding song. And she goes, I bet he would, you know. And next thing I know, man, I, I remember telling the guys, I spent the whole afternoon with Sam Moore recording Mr. Pitiful. You ain't going to believe it. You know, the guys were stunned, you know. And then he even guest starred on our DVD uh, when we recorded live at the Fillmore for the 40th anniversary. And then the final one was Huey Lewis. You know, Huey was a friend, and uh, we brought him in, and he, he did six, three, four, five, seven, eight, nine. He burned it down. So that's how it happened. Well, then from there, I think the next studio record wasn't until your, your recent success. So uh, why, why did 10 years kind of, almost 10 years, elapse again between, you know, projects from the studio? I don't know, you know, things change for us. You know, we're, it wasn't like the old days where, you know, we've got a record deal and a huge budget and you lock out the studio and spend millions of dollars and nobody thinks about it, you know, and all of a sudden it's like, you got to come up with the money, you know, and not only that, got a 10-piece band that's a working band, everybody needs to eat, so we gig a lot, you know, so you got to do it between gigs. It's not as though you can go, yeah, we're taking six months off and making a record. There ain't no six months off. You know, these guys need to work all the time. And uh, so it just took a, a good while. But, you know, as we started inching towards the 50th anniversary, uh, my old manager, Ron Barnett, called me up, you know, we're talking. And he says, you know, I need to tell you something, man. This, this is no time to throw 12 songs together and put them out. Because you need to make the best record of your career. And the only way you do that is the Michael Jackson method. And what do you mean? He goes, record way more than you need and then pick the best 12. So I resolved in my mind I was going to cut 25 songs. And I was recording at a studio in Sacramento. This guy was letting us record there for free, you know. And, and we recorded. I, I got uh, a 18 tracks recorded up there, just basics, you know. And But then I was trying to get in. When, you know, when I had 10 days off, I want to go in the studio for four or five days. But he'd have somebody booked in there. I couldn't get in. So a lot of that was, you know, time to go by. I couldn't get in. But our business manager, Diane Ricci, is married to Joe Vanelli. Joe Vanelli, of course, is Gino Vanelli's brother and produced all those great Gino Vanelli records and a lot of other records for other artists. And he had sort of put it out there. He goes, I'd love for you guys to come in and do a couple of tracks. I'll give you, you know, two free days. And so, you know, I needed to get in. And I said, uh, yeah, well, I'll take advantage of that. So I went in, I did two days with him. And it was a whole other ballgame. His studio was 
really a top-notch studio. And he's an incredible musician, you know, really excellent engineer, super technical savvy, you know, and I just really enjoyed it. And, uh, and he did too. And then he says, uh, you guys want to do two more? You know, and we go, yeah. So came back, you know, a week later and we did two more. And uh, it was at that point, I think I had 21 songs recorded, just basics, that's all. And uh, I knew the project was too big for me. You know, there was no way I was going to reel this thing. There's too many songs and I'm working and going in. I got to have a life too, you know. And I was going to the airport. Joe was driving me and I said, I just, you know, I just felt like God was telling me to ask this guy to help me. And I said, Joe, this is what I'm trying to do, man. I'm trying to make the best record of my career. I'm trying to record 25 songs and pick the best 12. He goes, wow, that's a big project. I go, yeah, I know. I, go, I think it's too big for me. Would you help me finish it? Yeah, I'd love to, you know, but great. And so I started working with him, and then we kicked it in high gear. And every time I was off, I'd go there. And we wound up recording actually 28 songs. And uh, and they all came out so good uh, that, you know, once we got them close to being, you know, they weren't mixed yet, but they were ready to be mixed. You know, we had tapes we could send out with people, and our manager went to this new label mac avenue records and they liked all of it you know and they said we want to put it all out now you know we said well let's let's wait let's just put out one record and then we'll put out the second one so we have two completed records one that's out now is soul side of town we're really proud of it and then we have another one that's coming out before the year is out and but we recorded it all at once okay well that's very exciting news that there's another one uh, coming soon especially uh, not having to wait 10 years again. Yeah, no, we have the, we're working on the cover right now. They want to put it out by November. I hope we get the package done by then. Fantastic. But uh, the, the record itself is mixed, mastered, sequenced, ready to go. Well, so Soul, Soul Side of Town, I mean, very impressive, uh, just terrific record. I don't know if anyone saw it coming, you know, that Tower of Power would come back at that level uh, with new material. Um, very impressive. Um, congratulations on that. Yeah, you know, Joe Vanelli was just one of the smartest decisions I ever made in my life. He gets it. He gets Tower of Power. He has a super high expectation musically. He's got a real great musicality about him. He's really creative, and he's a workhorse. He loves to work. You know, so we, we, when we're working, we're getting a lot done, and it's high-quality work and extremely creative and really high-end technically, you know? And we just, we pulled out every stop you could pull out. And uh, I learned a lot working with him. And you had a, a throwback to Oakland Stroke with the yeah. uh, beginning and, and, and ending, and I'm sure that was a conscious decision. Yeah, and that's on the next record as well, two different versions. We actually have four versions of those bookends. And so we put the two on this soul side of town and we have the other two on the next record. And they're different. So in your shows now, uh, how much of the new material are you integrating into your show? I think we're doing four new ones, four or five. Yeah. Uh, um, and how would you say that the Tower of Power show differs today versus mid-70s? Um, I wouldn't say a whole lot. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a real soul show. 
That's what it is. You know, people say, "What well, you know, what's the light tower power light? That's, you know, it's like going to see James Brown or Sly and the Family Stone or Prince. You know, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a high energy soul show. You should leave emotionally exhausted and physically sweating your, your, to the nth degree. You know, uh, it's a, a really exciting show. And I think that's what we've always been. I mean, we try to bring it live. It's about excitement. Well, I, I wanted to ask you also, Emilio, before uh, we part ways, I appreciate you being so generous with your time for this. Um, you know, what would you say was the most unforgettable, or you can even name two if you want, experiences from the road throughout it all? What are one or two that just stand out in your mind and why? Well, you know, I always tell people about the Aretha Franklin concert at the Fillmore West, which she recorded live at the Fillmore. You know, uh, Bill Graham was bringing in Aretha for a weekend at the Fillmore West. And it was, it was like the biggest news in the nation. I mean, all the media was looking at it. Everybody was super excited. And even though at the time we were sort of having a, a little tiff with Bill, this is the mark of the man. He knew we'd be the best band to open for her. And uh, so he put us on through the whole weekend, you know. And I remember we did the weekend and we did really good, you know. And they have this, um, insert in the sunday chronicle you know and it's it's like a newspaper magazine and you know in the middle of the magazine they had a big review on the on the aretha gig you know and it's talking about how king curtis and the kingpins came out after tower power finished their set you know and they started off with memphis soul stew and even though king curtis and those memphis horns and the band with Bernard Purdy and Cornell Dupree and Chuck Rainey and Billy Preston and Richard T. You know, great musicians. And it says, the Tower of Power had stolen their thunder, you know. And I remember being backstage and everybody was there. So there was, you know, a good-sized dressing room there, but it was packed. Everybody and their mother got backstage, you know. And so I was standing in the doorway of the dressing room behind the stage. And here comes Aretha in that really tight white dress that she was wearing. And she had a white turban on. And she's coming. And I could tell she wants to get into the dress. So I turned sideways because I couldn't go in. It was packed. And I turned sideways. And she kind of nudges in. And we're in the doorway, nose to nose. And she goes, Tower of Power, my favorite band. <laughs> and I just melted, you know. And so that, that's one of my most favorite memories from uh, back in the day, you know. And as far as, you know, others, uh, uh, the other one I, I really remember is with the horn section, you know. We played Candlestick Park with the Rolling Stones. And that was a really involved process because Bill Graham wanted us to play with the Rolling Stones. We, we had done a gig, we were playing some live gigs with Hart, and they had opened for the Rolling Stones in Denver. And Bill said, I want you to bring your horns and I want you to come to the hotel where Mick and the guys are staying and just be in the hospitality room. And I'm going to bring Mick Jagger down to talk to you. And then you guys are going to get along and you're going to party and he's going to ask you to sit in, you know, we're like, okay. And so we go there <laughs> and uh, we're all down there and we got this, you know, fully stocked hospitality room and all the finest wines and finest brandies and, you know, foods. And, and uh, we're all in there and uh, there's a big stereo. And uh, all of a sudden, here comes Bill and Mick Jagger. And he comes in and, you know, and Bill says, you know, this is Tower of Power Horns, this is Emilio. And 
this doc, and he's like, hello, you know. And he said he starts, he goes to the stereo, puts in his cassette. He goes, "Have you ever heard of Prince?" You know, and I go, yeah, well, Prince recorded across the hall from us his first record at the record plant in Sausalito, so I knew who he was. You know, I go, "Yeah, I know Prince." You know, he goes, "Yeah, it's fabulous, isn't he?" You know, and he starts dancing. You know, and as soon as that little intercourse happened between him and I, Bill decides they're getting along. I'm going to tell them to go get their horns. <laughs> I don't know what possessed them. What are we going to do? Just pull out our horns and start playing? There's no band or nothing. <laughs> but he goes, hey, guys, go get your horns. <laughs> and we're like, uh, okay. We, we had them down in the car, you know. And so the crew guy uh, goes to get the horns. And the next thing I know, I see uh, Mick Jagger. He's dancing. and He goes dancing backwards out the door. And Bill goes, ah! I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done that. And we're going, what just happened? And he goes, look, I'm trying to fix it so that they invite you to sit in. I can't suggest it to them. They're the Rolling Stones. But if I keep you hanging around, they're going to ask you to sit in because you're the greatest horn section in the world. And I go, okay. You know. So then he had me go, just me, go to San Diego, go to LA, and then go to San Francisco. And he says, just, I want you to hang out at the hotel with them. So I'm hanging out, you know, a lot of drugs and Keith Richards and, you know, they're all there and, and they're partying and, you know, and I'm just hanging out, you know, doing my thing and nothing happens. And he's like, they haven't said nothing. And they go, no, you know, they don't even acknowledge me. You know, it's like, you know, and so I get up to San Francisco and um, he tells Mick Jagger, he says, you know, Mick, he goes, you know, don't you get it? I'm trying to get you to ask these guys to sit in with you. They're the greatest horn section in the world. And he goes, oh, 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 well, all right, you know. And so it's all set up. We're going to play with them, and we're going to do Satisfaction, you know. And we're going to play the Otis Redding parts, you know, dun, dun, da, 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 you know. And we played that a million times. We knew it, you know, inside out. And we're on our way to go into the Winnebago to run it. And uh, Mick Jagger is running late. I mean, not Mick, uh, Keith Richards is running late. And it turns out that he was jonesing. He was out of dope. He wasn't feeling well. And he comes in and he sees us. And he goes, what's this? And Mick goes, tell about horns. They're going to sit in. He goes, not today. You know, and they blow us off. It's off. We're not doing it. And Doc is devastated. And Doc and Keith Richards had sort of started this friendship. And, you know, he liked Doc a lot, Keith did, you know. So later on, Bill Graham goes up to Keith Richards and he goes, you know what, man, that was so uncool. And he goes, what? You know, and he says, you devastated that poor guy. He goes, who? And he goes, Doc, the funky doctor, man. He thought he was going to play today and he just blew him off. He goes, oh, he goes, I, didn't, I, I didn't mean it. He goes, they can play tomorrow. Well, the next day, I've had it. I've been hanging out now for, you know, over a week and a half. I'm done. I didn't want to get up. I remember my my uh, father-in-law saying, aren't you going to go to the stadium? They're playing Oakland or Candlestick Park. And I go, no, I'm, I'm done with those guys. Now you better go. And finally he convinces me, and I get in a cab, and I go there. And when I pull up backstage, Bill Graham's out there. He's going, where you been? Get in there. They're rehearsing, you know. And I go in there. And, uh, and it's Keith Richard with guitar, and he's playing Satisfaction. 
And he looks at me, he goes, we're doing satisfaction. He goes, the Otis Redding version, do you know it? <laughs> and they go, yeah, I think so. <laughs> you know, so we run it. And, uh, and so it's all set. We're going to play the encore. So we're up there and they have a riser for us. And all the mics are set up and there's a scrim in front of it. And we're waiting for the set to end. And when the set ends, uh, they all come behind the scrim. They're waiting for their encore. And Keith Richards passes out on our riser and they can't bring him to. And Bill Graham is on top of him. He's, he's beating him in the chest and he's giving him mouth to mouth. He's shaking him. He's trying to, you know, and I'm looking at him. I'm like, are you kidding me? After all this, he's going to die now, you know? And the next thing I know, this guy walks up and he's got a doctor's bag and he gets on top of him and shoots him up with something. <laughs> Keith Richards jumps up in the air. He goes, let's rock. <laughs> and they went out there and the scrim goes up and we're playing satisfaction with the Rolling Stones, you know. And we get to the right out and we're doing the right out. And he's, you know, Mick Jagger is loving it. So he's going longer and longer. And Mick Gillette, our trumpet player, takes it up an octave, which makes it way more exciting, you know. And he's turning purple there, trying to hit those high notes over and over and over. And this is making Mick Jagger love it even more. So he's going longer and longer, you know. And we're vamping on this thing, man. The crowd is going crazy. You know, they all know us because it's the Bay Area. And then the thing ends, and Mick Jagger jumps in there. He goes, top our horns, you know. And the face just goes, ah, you know. And Bill Graham jumps on my back. He's got me, and he's choking me. He goes, you're the greatest. You're the greatest. <laughs> it was one of the highest moments of my life ever, ever, ever. Wow. <laughs> what what year was that? Do you think? 1982. Oh, that was a big tour. It was. That was the uh, Start Me Up tour. I, I saw the show at the LA Coliseum uh, where was Prince there. was booed off the stage. Yeah. yeah I was there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I still have the uh, uh, shirt jersey uh, from that. No, it wasn't Prince, though. It was, um, uh, what's his name? Bad to the Bone, the guitar player. No, he was on it, too. It was uh, George Doroga, Jay Giles. Yeah, George Doroga. Prince opened, but he was famously booed off the stage. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, they threw stuff at him. Yeah, I was busy backstage trying <laughs> to hit my window. Oh, <laughs> uh, wow. Well, it's hard to top uh, that story, uh, but I want to ask you, um, you know, it, what what would you say is your your favorite uh, T.O.P. track out of them all, and why? Well, I can't say my favorite, but I can tell you one of my favorites. I got a lot of favorites, but I always mention oh, only so much oil in the ground. You know, uh, when I recorded it, I thought it was going to be the biggest record of my career. I thought I had the baddest rhythm section, the baddest tenor solo, the baddest organ solo, the best lyrics, the best vocal, the best backgrounds. You know, just everything, the best horn arrangement. It was exciting, and and I remember raving to my manager. This is the best record we've ever made. It's phenomenal. You know, it wasn't even a hit single. You know, but that being said, we've played it ever since, and it becomes more and more pertinent every day because of the energy shows. You know, the lyric lyric content, and, and it always goes over great. I just really enjoy playing it, and our new singer Marcus Scott burns it down completely. You know. So it's hitting pretty hard these days. Yeah. Wow. So 
how are, how are you keeping up the energy, you know, as we advance in our, our years and is it getting a little more challenging? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm 68, I'll be 69 in September. Uh, I take good care of myself. I've been sober almost 31 years. I eat healthy, I work out. I try to get sleep, you know, every night. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we, we sort of got the travel thing down to a science. You know, we, we stay in nice places, we, we get nice buses, we get, you know, good cars. And, you know, so it, it's difficult. Traveling is more difficult, you know, and uh, it's harder on your body when you're at this age. But, you know, to be real honest, when we're on stage and we're firing on all 10 cylinders, it ain't work, man. It's play. <laughs> so I understand you're uh, going to embark on a Europe leg, a European leg uh, pretty soon. We're doing two, actually. I'm leaving next week for almost three weeks of Europe. And we're actually doing Royal Albert Hall. Big gig. Wow. With Incognito is the opening up. Okay. And then we're going back, I think, in August for a shorter run uh, England, more festivals. We're doing Montreux Jazz Festival and Norsey Jazz. We're doing a recording with Jacob Collier while we're in London this time. That should be really interesting. He's really great. So yeah, a lot of stuff happening. Wow. And how can uh, people best keep up with it all, all things T.O.P.? Uh, you know, we're completely social media out. I mean, we have the FaceTime thing, the Twitter thing. We have a great website. Uh, Really easy to get in touch with. You want to know what's going on with TOP? All you got to do is turn on your computer or your phone. Good enough. So before we uh, wind this up, uh, Emilio, any last message to uh, TOP fans? Thank you. <laughs> thank you for a great life. Well, thank you. On behalf of all of them, much gratitude for all the wonderful music that you've provided to us and continue to put out there. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You too. Thank you so much. Take good care. All right, man. God bless. Bye-bye. Hey, hey, back at Truth and Rhythm Central. You certainly ought to have been having fun with that amazing journey and reflections on the legendary Tower of Power. So many great stories. Wow. If you're like me, you'll go back through the band's entire catalog now and listen anew, incorporating perspectives shared from the band's heart and soul. A final thank you again goes out to Mr. Emilio Castillo for so vividly sharing the spectacular T.O.P. story. And as always, again, a special thanks out to you, the viewers and supporters of Truth and Rhythm. Whether you're watching the video through YouTube or funkinstuff.net or listening through iTunes or so many other podcast providers, thank you so much again for your continued support of the show. And as mentioned before, subscribe. If you're not already doing so, subscribe to the Funk Stuff channel on YouTube. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives and breathes. And if you love jazz, funk, soul, R&B, all that great stuff, show these musicians that you support and love what they do and that you endorse this show. It's free and it's for you. So what could be better? Uh, speaking of which, write me, email scottg at funkandstuff.net. Let me know what you like, maybe what you don't like so much, who else you'd like to see on the show, just to shoot around the horn about different music uh, things, uh, whatever's on your mind, musically speaking, or otherwise, drop me a note. I promise you I will respond and do so pretty quickly. With that, for now, as always, you know the drill. Scott, Dr. Jake's Wolfine here, signing off, saying, keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one.